This is Terms of Reference. I'm your host, Stephen Laddick. Dr. Beryl Levenger is a highly regarded development professional, distinguished professor, and chair of the Development Practice and Policy Program at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey. With a career that includes senior positions such as the president of AFS Intercultural Programs, senior vice president of CARE, and vice president of Save the Children, Beryl draws on a rich array of experiences to teach classes and deliver consulting across the five issues of evaluation, capacity development, strategic planning, education, and health. A former vice chair of both PACT and Interaction, Beryl has worked in nearly 90 countries and, for the past 15 years, she has been research director or co-director of Save the Children's State of the World's Mothers Report, a publication that offers a comparative perspective on the health, education, and gender issues faced by girls and women throughout the world. Beryl has won numerous international awards for the quality of her contributions to the field of development. I spoke with Beryl in Monterey. Hi there, Beryl. Thank you so much for being on the Terms of Reference podcast today. Stephen, it's great to be with you. It's a real honor. And where am I calling you today? I'm in Monterey, California at my office at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey. Super cool. And we're, we're talking on March 30th, so I'm going to guess that in Monterey, California, sunshine, surfs up. What's it like there? It's all of that, but it's also our fourth year of drought. So sunshine is no longer quite as attractive as it used to be. I think most of us who live here wish it were raining. Beryl, you've been a development professional for many, many years. One of the questions that everybody has that they're trying to, who are trying to get into the sector or create a career here is learning how people like you got started. How did you decide to become a development professional? How did that process happen for you? Well, the truth is I never had a thought at all about becoming a development professional. I was on track to become a lawyer. I was an undergraduate at Cornell when I met the man who subsequently became my husband, and he was on track to be a development professional. So he, uh, from an early age, became proficient in two languages. By the time I met him, he was in the midst of mastering Quechua. Uh, he claimed to be the only undergraduate student in, in of Quechua which was probably true because Cornell had the only Quechua program and he was in it and he was the only undergraduate. And I, please forgive me for not knowing where that language is. Where's Quechua spoken? It's an Indian language, uh, predominantly in Peru and, and Bolivia. Okay, fantastic. So anyway, he, he uh, was uh, from a very early age. Uh, as soon as John F. Kennedy gave his memorable speech announcing the Peace Corps, my husband was good to go. The only problem was that if I were uh, to become his wife, I would have to join Peace Corps, too. So I was more interested in marrying him, honestly, than I was in pursuing a career in international development. And uh, we did Peace Corps together, and that was when I fell in love with international development as a career. But when I think back on that particular time in my life, which was immediately after undergraduate... Where did you serve in Peace Corps, specifically? Uh, rural Columbia, in a very, very uh, rural, remote area. The thing that was important about that experience, and this is a, a very hard thing for me to say, most people who do a career in development actually never live among poor people at all. It's, it's very seldom the case that you actually would be living in the community that you're hoping to, to serve and benefit once you have finished that phase of your career, which is Peace Corps. 
So I, I think Peace Corps is, or, or some equivalent of Peace Corps, where you're actually living and working in the communities that you're intending to support. That experience of actually living and working and not having a division between living and working, I think is critical to anybody who's pursuing a, a career in this field. So ultimately, we remained in Latin America for 10 years, two years in Peace Corps, and then um, he began a career in care. I began a career in international development more broadly, uh, worked with USAID, uh, worked with a couple of schools, uh, worked as a Peace Corps staff member, and then at the end of a 10-year period, we came back to the U.S. I did my Ph.D. in educational planning, and the first job after my Ph.D. was for Save the Children. And my story at Save the Children is actually an interesting one because within a year I was promoted like three times. And by the end of the year, I was offered a vice presidency. But I came in as a lowly grant writer. I was just one, the first level of non-exempt employees, which is the lowest level of professional staff in, the, in any organization, and within a year, as I say, I was offered a, a very senior position, and I had been promoted to a senior per, per position. And the reason for that was something that's rather um, odd. It was on the strength of my writing skills initially. Mm-hmm. And so when I think about what it is that people ought to be able to do, depending on what kinds of careers they're pursuing, if you're in a large organization that has a fairly well-established bureaucracy, being gifted at, being, at, at writing, communicating more broadly, reaching across to di- diverse constituencies and bringing them together are probably the most important skills anyone could have once you've had the decade of fieldwork that I just described. Take me back for a second. When you were overseas for 10 years, what was the moment you decided to come back and do a PhD? What, what was the impetus for that? More opportunity than anything else. I was very fortunate in that at the time that I decided to do this, I was working with USAID, and there was a contract between USAID at the time and the University of Alabama. And if I pursued my PhD under that contract, I would get essentially not more than, better than a free ride, they would pay me to do that. So circumstances and my own sense of wanting to have a, a broader skill set, I had gotten pretty much the skill set one could develop being in the field. And I wanted a skill set that I could only get working with other people who were engaged in theory as opposed to practice. I had done the practice mm-hmm, part. Mm-hmm. Now, to improve practice with theory. And I think, just as an aside, we tend to dichotomize theory versus practice, but in fact, they mutually inform one another, and um, you need both in order to have a productive career. So I came back, did my PhD, and the first job post-PhD was with Save the Children. And I was extremely fortunate in that the first, I was given two major projects to work on once I was promoted to a senior executive position. And the first one was the founding of Interaction, which is the the major trade association for U.S.-based NGOs. I think that there are now 180 organizations. And the other major project that I was asked to pursue 
was um, helping to form the Save the Children Alliance or to reform it. It already existed, but it, it wasn't, it was a pretty loose confederation and there was a desire to make it into something that was more cooperative, not necessarily a unitary management structure that came much later. So those were the two projects I was given to work on and what that did in a way that I could never have anticipated was it gave me an incredibly rich network of collaborators from other organizations. So if I were giving career advice to someone, I would say if you can get yourself into a network, an already existing network, which in this case were was the network of entities that were trying to come together to create a trade association or to create a more collaborative network of uh, implementing Save the Children's, then you have the opportunity to um, tap in in a way that is essentially unimaginable into the into the world of development. Mm. You also have, along with that, that rich network, you've also achieved something that I think many people would in our sector would consider the holy grail of having a professional mixture of being able to see both theory and practice in the fact that you're working at Monterey right now, but you also, you're also doing consulting work as well. How does that work professionally? Is it just an agreement that you have with Monterey? You're like, yeah, I'm a professor here, but I also do consulting work? Or explain to us how, how does that, that work sort of contractually? Well, I, I was very, very fortunate in 1992 when unexpectedly I got a, a letter inviting me to come and speak at the then Monterey Institute of International Studies. Since then, we are the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey. I was a practitioner. I wasn't a consultant um, particularly. I was the CEO of AFS, Intercultural Programs, at the time. Mm -hmm. I had um, just left CARE a few years earlier and had been um, essentially the chief operating officer of CARE before it was CARE International. It was just plain old CARE. So I I had this invitation to come and speak about my experiences. I did come and speak. We liked each other, and before I knew it, I had an invitation to come as distinguished professor, which is a real privilege. I'm the only uh, full-time distinguished professor on our faculty, but the terms and conditions of this particular appointment included the ability to engage in practice um, where other people had a, a research burden as part of their appointment. I have a mix of research and, and practice as part of the terms and conditions of my appointment. And so in any given year, i pursuing a very rich blend of consulting and teaching. And in the current year, I'm actually doing a project that I've done for the last 15 years with Save the Children, which is serving as co-director for research on the State of the World's Mother's Report, uh, which comes out to coincide with Mother's Day. But I also am working with the World Bank, with Freedom from Hunger, and typically I'll work on anywhere from 10 to 20 projects, depending on how busy I am, that are actual practice projects with a focus primarily on capacity development. So this year, for example, I also am working with the International Resources Group, helping them to flesh out their practice around Um, how to develop capacity for a variety of uh, circumstances, 
ranging from individual organizations to networks, non-governmental as well as governmental uh, entities. I'm also working with an organization called Root Change. And um, again, pretty much all of the work I do is around organizational and ecosystem capacity development. I'll just put in one quick plug for this work. It's not training. It's something much, 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 much broader than training, although people tend to equate the term capacity development with with training. It's helping organizations and partnerships and networks to set up systems that enable them to have greater impact. Tell me about within this amazing uh, itinerary that you already have planned for this year, looking back on maybe the last year, the last couple of years where you've been doing the, you know, the same type of work, is there a story that you could tell us about a surprising result uh, you know, where you went and gave, you know, we're, we're working capacity building or, you know, maybe it's with interaction or, or with, with Save the Children where you intended one outcome, but either some incredible synergy happened or some completely unintended outcome happened? I'm going to tell two stories, if that would be okay. One that happened at the very beginning of my career and one that's more recent. See, two for the price of one. Are you kidding me? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the first story is a 1968 story. I'm a Peace Corps volunteer in this very rural area in Colombia, working on what subsequently came to be known as um, the Escuela Nueva movement, the New School movement. This is a an approach to providing very high-quality education to children living in remote rural areas, one-teacher schools, I won't get into the methodology other than to say it's probably the best researched, most acclaimed methodology for educational reform, bar none. It's been replicated in about 40 countries, and I had the the privilege of co-founding this movement with two colleagues, one who sadly passed away a few years ago. His name is Oscar Mogollon, and the other colleague, Vicky Colbert, Colbert is um, very much alive and and active still in the movement. Anyway, this was at the very, very beginnings of um, the Escuela Nueva movement, talking about 1968. And the idea was to to give teachers a methodology that they can use with students um, from multiple grades. So one teacher might be teaching everything from first to fifth grade in a single classroom. So you can think of the old uh, style little house on the prairie, one room schoolhouse and get the general idea of what we're talking about with a twist, just add Montessori to it, Uh, project-based learning, lots of exploration and teachers who were trained primarily in an informal way to manage very complex classroom environments. And these were teachers who themselves Uh, seldom had completed anything beyond 10th grade. So in one of the schools, the teacher that I worked with, the teacher embraced the methodology, applied it brilliantly, and had kids doing very interesting, complex learning activities. And slowly but surely, the enrollment began to decline. And it went from about 80 kids to about 20 students in a period of about 10 weeks. So clearly that was not the intended outcome. Mm -hmm. And and the reason that it had declined, 
amazingly, was because parents didn't see the work that their children were doing as learning. They saw the work as playing. Mm -hmm. And the opportunity costs of sending children to school in this particular area were quite high. And parents basically said, look, I didn't plan to have my, my, my son or my daughter play considering what I'm giving up, the child's work at home, in the fields. So this is not a good trade-off. I'm taking my kid out. And the lesson that I learned from that, which was really critical, was you can't do anything without engaging a community thoroughly at every stage of the planning, the design, the implementation, evaluation, reassessment, redesign, that you cannot work around communities. You have to work with communities. And this was so early in my career and so much before we had a really well-grounded understanding of what participation meant, that it was seminal in terms of, of, of my development. But were, you, it was also- were you able to, uh, to re-recruit those parents and bring them back, or was this just too early on? We, we changed teachers, which was really sad, but that was the re-recruitment strategy. Mm. It's, you know, there's a new sheriff in town. Try again. But subsequently, the entire new school methodology, the entire Escuela Nueva methodology was built on a very robust model of participation in which parents were partners at every stage of the educational endeavor, at every stage. So we, we changed the methodology, ratcheted up quite a bit. And then in subsequent years, um, built in a series of safeguards to ensure that nothing could happen without the active participation of parents. Mm -hmm. So that's a sad story. Yeah, I I take it you have a happy one for us. I figured I needed to balance that one out. (laughs) Okay. So, so this is a newer story, uh, as you might imagine. So that you know, I'm I'm bookending a, a long career. The next story is something that happened over the course of the last, from 2011 to 2014, when a colleague and I, um, the colleague is Evan Bloom, and the two of us were doing a project for the International Federation of Red Cross Red Crescent Societies, looking at how they approached capacity development. I won't describe in detail what the project consisted of, but at the end of about Two and a half years, we discovered that if you looked at this system of Red Cross, Red Crescent National Societies around the world, they tended to perform very much in a manner that was consistent with their HDI, Human Development Index, score. So the the best performers were in the wealthy world, the, the performers that were most in need of strengthening were in the low-income countries, and you could pretty much predict how well a national society would do just by looking at their human development index score for the country in which they were operating, and then you could extrapolate from that score how well comparatively each of these national societies would do. So it was a HDI score is destiny kind of uh, moment for us. Here's the good news. We also learned that you could escape your HDI destiny as an organization by networking. Hmm. What does that mean? So if, if you engaged with lots of other actors, 
you could get lots, lots, lots better at what your basic mission was. You could get lots better in this case in responding to emergencies and promoting long-term development outcomes associated with uh, youth, with health, with education, with disaster preparedness, that the more that you networked, the better you became, which is a real surprise if you are seeing capacity development primarily through a lens of training, um, systems development, that just being around other actors turned out to be an incredibly enriching experience. The old adage, it is who you hang out with. It is exactly who you hang out with. And and, and I, I love the way you said that, Stephen, because what we began to say is that birds of a feather flock together. And if you flocked with a lot of birds, you would be better. <laughs> And yet you got to be conscious about which bird you flock with, right? So that's what we began to work on was this idea of smart networking, exactly mm. what you're saying. We didn't expect to see, when we undertook the study, we did not expect to see anything like the correlation between networking and performance. We expected to see a strong correlation between capacity development investments and capacity. Mm-hmm. And there there was some correlation. The much stronger correlation was around um, this issue of just engaging with others and, and how, how surprising it became to us that engaging with others may be one of the most powerful capacity development strategies we had ever thought about. And the reason that's, that that is so surprising is, again, because much of the work in capacity development is focused on training and systems development rather than just more and better and smarter hanging out. Is there a trick of the trade? One of the things that, you know, we hear in graduate schools all day long is network, network, network. You hear that in almost every professional association. Is there a trick? Is there a tip, so to speak, that you could share with our listeners that is, you know, makes for active or better networking? Yeah. You're better off being a big fish in a small pond than a small fish in a big pond. Well said. Fantastic. I mean, that was actually what we learned also, that if you could specialize and bring to a larger network a set of contacts that others didn't have, that's the big fish and small pond approach to networking, you actually were more desirable. People would seek you out to have access to these contacts. Speaking of seeking you out, I'm wondering, or, or maybe I'm just assuming, how does your consulting work come to you? I'm going to make the assumption that you're not going to go out, you're not going out there these days and writing proposals. Does it all come through your network? It all comes through my networking. There is, I never advertise and I never solicit. How often do you say no? The last three things that came my way, I said no to. Uh, one was a UNHCR project where I just didn't have the time to do it properly. One was a large project for the Secretary General uh, of the UN. It was fun to get an email that says, Secretary of General reaching out to you. (laughs) (laughs) It was just, I thought it was like a, uh, you know, asking for a contribution and I wasn't even going to open it, but I did. and, and, And there was the invitation to do the project. Again, I'm trying to choose things that are meaningful to me 
and that are going to be learningful. I'm much more interested at this point in my career in doing projects that redefine the field rather than doing a project that's like something else that I'm currently doing. Speaking of redefining the field, you have one of the reasons I really wanted to talk to you is you have one of these perspectives of this career arc that has seen the development and aid sector evolve over the last 20 years or longer. What's the biggest challenge or challenges that you're seeing right now in the sector? And I'm just going to leave it at that so I don't sort of prompt the question. I think it's really important to make a distinction between sponsored development, that is to say, if you will, the development industry or what I call corporate development through sponsored by USAID, World Bank, and other major donors and the contractors who work with them and development thinking writ more broadly. So the two the two changes that I see are a convergence of sectors. We used to think of civil society, the market, the state as being three distinct sectors. I don't think that's true anymore. I think that the sectors are easily interchangeable and they each operate in each other's space. Um, so that's, that to me is a huge change. And it also means that an implication of that change is that um, social impact investment, social entrepreneurship are now standard approaches to development, and the distinctiveness of the of the sectors um, has been lost. And whether that ultimately will prove to be a good thing or not, I'm not yet certain about. I don't believe that. I believe in the power of the market, but I don't believe in the power of the market to resolve every social challenge. Mm-hmm that were the case, they'd all be resolved by now, and clearly they're not. Over the course of my career, I've seen sectors come and go. Uh, So if we were to talk today about a sector called democracy and governance, years ago that wasn't a sector. Early childhood education, which was recently featured as the thematic focus of the Holt Prize, when I first entered development wasn't considered a sector that was worthy of comment. So sectors come and sectors go. Actors have their moment of preeminence and and less eminence. But I think that in the development industry, increasingly the work is done almost exclusively by contractors with very little capacity and engagement done by by people from within the donor or sponsoring agencies. It's all contracted out. I'm not sure that that's a healthy trend, but that definitely is the trend. And then I, so, so that, that, that's one trend that I would comment on. And then the other is the blending of new tools and new approaches. For example, there's nothing that I do in terms of design work that doesn't draw on multiple modalities, design thinking, local systems analysis, more broadly systems approaches and complexity, as well as the standard design tools that people in our field use, um, such as log frames and results frameworks. And increasingly, I'm trying to look at principles drawn from behavioral economics and see how those principles could be neatly imported into capacity development strategies. I feel that our field is dynamic, constantly evolving and constantly changing, and that we are probably um, going to continue reinventing and and reinvigorating as long as there's poverty in the world. 
The biggest change, obviously, on the landscape, the single biggest change in terms of corporate development is that if contractors are playing an ever-growing role, the cast of characters represented by those contractors has changed. So there is more and more attention being given to, to develop organizations and individuals in the global south who can do what the global north has done through its um, contracting individuals and organizations. So the, the sourcing has changed very dramatically. Is that a, a lead into the most recent USAID administrators push to go local, so to speak? I think so, but I think it goes beyond that. I think that we were successful to some degree in all the work that we've done in the last half century, that there is local capacity that's enormous. It isn't just that we have to develop it. We've already been successful in great measure in seeing local capacity blossom in pretty much every region of the world. I mean, the idea that I would go into a country in Latin America as a major expert in anything that I do is almost preposterous because there are local practitioners who may not be as well-known internationally, but would certainly know a great deal more about what's going on in that country and in neighboring countries and would be able to use some of the same tools, same approaches as I might use, but probably could do it with a greater flair culturally and linguistically than I could do it. Mm. Along the lines of looking forward into the future, you have a fantastic opportunity that you get to interact with the next generation of development professionals every day. Talk to us a little bit about those people, uh, because those are the majority of our listeners. What's the most, maybe the most surprising thing or, or the thing that just makes you scratch your head when, when you walk into a classroom this semester and you're like, wow, I didn't expect that, or gosh, this is going to be important? I'll start off with something that I think is a, a big demographic difference. I don't think that anybody in my generation, which is the baby boomer generation, ever talked about work-life balance in the field of development. <laughs> okay. <laughs> if you were doing development, you weren't looking for a work-life balance. The, the idea that you would, that there is a, a, a demarcation between your work and the rest of your life in development is just not an idea that I think any of us ever even thought to consider. And if I talk to people now um, who are my students, the question that they raise is, so, you know, what, what is the work-life balance like in this particular organization? Or what would it be like for this particular assignment? I'm going, wow, I don't think you get this. <laughs> I don't get something that they're getting. So I, I, I don't, I think their perspective may be one that would be healthier to embrace, and I just kind of missed it. But I think that the, um, the work-life balance issue is a very interesting generational de- uh, divide. Do you think that that stems from perhaps they are less mission-driven than your generation? Or, be- or because this field is now so established as a career opportunity that it's being essentially compared apples to apples to any commercial sector? I don't think that people are less mission-driven. I think that they have perhaps even a healthier understanding of what it means to be in this field on a long-term basis. And they're, they're not running sprints, they're running marathons. And I think for a lot of us, we've just been running sprints for decades. 
that's one way of interpreting it. I think the other point is exactly what you said, Stephen, that it's a career. It's a career for idealists, but they're practical, pragmatic idealists more than just uh, unmitigated idealists. And there are a lot of ways that one could help others today that maybe weren't quite so clear to us when the boomer generation came into this field. Mm. I only have a couple of core questions for you, but two of them are ones that I, I ask every, every guest here on the show. What's been your biggest failure over your career? We all have many failures, but I'm, I'm interested in, you know, when's a time or a story about either a program you worked on or a personal initiative just, you know, really fell on its face. And what did you do to either pick up the pieces or learn from it and keep on going? Well, certainly I began by telling you a story early on where I learned sure. to pick mm-hmm. the pieces and kept on going. And I think that that story that I've already shared with you is definitely my biggest failure. I mean, if I think about it and really allow myself to think about it in any way, how many children who were enrolled in that school never went any further than the moment that they dropped out mm. because social experiment that I introduced. I don't think I've had a failure that quite matched that failures for me are in all shades of gray. so this is not a story about 50 shades of gray. I want to make that clear, <laughs> <laughs> but, but rather, I think our listenership would grow immediately if it was though. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> but you you can mess up on so many different levels. You can mess up by alienating somebody. You can mess up by introducing a concept that isn't appropriate and people ultimately um, who are pr- applying the concept find themselves in, in trouble. You c- so it's not, I don't think that failure is the project didn't work. I think that failure could be something as simple as the advice that we gave looking back on it wasn't really strong advice. And I'll give you, I'll give you two examples of that. There is a very, very well-known capacity assessment tool that I and a colleague, Evan Bloom, uh, developed in the nineties uh, called DOSA. It's an acronym that stands for discussion oriented self-assessment. And there were a hundred scorable items in that um, tool. And it was used very widely. It was for a long time USAID's uh, recommended tool. And it still is um, available to people who want to use it. And it's still considered to be a usable, valuable tool. Subsequently, we came to realize that it is much more helpful to not measure every possible capacity that one could measure without weighting them, and that measuring a few things in greater depth would be much more valuable than measuring many things with relatively little depth. Mm-hmm. So if I look back at this work in the 90s and say, um, well, this was the state-of-the-art tool used by dozens of organizations and used by USAID itself to measure capacity, I would now say, well, they were, we, we, not, I can't say they, we were measuring the wrong capacities. We were assuming that all capacities are equal, assuming that there's no utility in differentiating which capacities are more closely associated with achievement of mission. I think all of that is is wrong. and, And it took, you know, it took a decade to figure out that that early thinking was not a sophisticated 
as the thinking that we're capable of doing. So that's one story of uh, learning and growing uh, in terms of work. And I would say the other story more broadly around um, the, the field of capacity development is a story about what we should be measuring in terms of the unit of analysis. So when I began, the, the field was organizational capacity development, and you would be measuring however you did it, whether it was using a tool like DOSA or, or much better tools that we published subsequently, you'd be looking at an organization and how well an organization was doing. And today, if I look at the work that we're doing and how the work has changed, we're interested in, in ecosystems more than individual organizations and looking at ecosystem capacity development, how well a set of organizations working together can make a dent in, in a particular set of challenges that have ultimately to do with the quality of life that uh, women, men, and children experience in a given community. So this idea of measuring the wrong thing, focusing so much on individual organizations rather than focusing on a set of organizations, the local system, if you will, and how that local system worked in terms of delivering services and protecting rights of individuals. I think that the focus on individual organizations essentially was an error. Quick follow-up there. Do you think that that's become more feasible just you know, with the advent of technology, with the advent of our, our you know, ability to collect more, better, faster, cheaper? Absolutely. I think technology is critical. But I also think asking fewer questions is critical. What happened under the oldest approaches is that you collected so much data, much of it about things that didn't matter. And it distracted people from focusing on what actually does matter. So a lot of, if you're going to be a USAID contractor, the state of your financial reporting system matters a lot. But if you're not, the state of your financial reporting system may matter a whole lot less as long as you're not committing fraud and there is reasonable uh, due diligence than your ability to communicate internally. That may be much more important. I believe mm-hmm. it actually is much more important. And I don't think that we had a very strong understanding in the 90s of which capacities mattered most. Mm-hmm. Fewer questions. One of the things that we espouse here at Aidpreneur is the ability to say no and do less. Mm-hmm. Do better. Hmm. So this is very much the, the, the concept. To say no, we don't have to analyze everything that can be analyzed. Say no to analyzing more. Say yes to analyzing what actually matters. And it's a, a, an application of the Pareto principle, the 80-20 rule. Look at 20% of what an organization is doing, but get the right 20%. And then you're going to account for 80% of its impact. Mm -hmm. The final question I have is one, again, that I ask every guest we have here on the show. And you alluded to it way back at the beginning of our conversation. But I wanted to ask it to maybe consolidate your thoughts on the topic. And the question is specifically, you know, our listeners are generally people coming out of a master's degree looking for their first job or, or, you know, looking to continue their career or people who are transitioning from another sector, from the private sector or, or, or some other career path. What are your one or two critical pieces of advice for them about how to create both sustainability and satisfaction in this business that we're in? Satisfaction and sustainability. I want to just spin this question a little bit in terms of transitioning 
because I think the first thing is how difficult it is to make a transition. Mm -hmm. In that regard, I want to mention a program that I direct, which we affectionately call DPMI, which stands for Design, Partnering, Management, and Innovation. And it's a three-week intensive program open to anybody. It is run in Monterey, California, twice a year, once a year in Washington, D.C., once a year in Kenya, and once a year in Rwanda, in Rwanda with Partners in Health at their training center. In Kenya, it's at the Aga Khan University, and it's co-sponsored by a group of NGOs working on capacity development called LOCUS. The focus of that program is three sets of skills, and I think to, to answer the question broadly, it's these three sets of skills that are the differentiators. Being able to design effectively, knowing what to focus on, having different modalities of design ranging from traditional tools uh, like a results framework, a problem tree, or a log frame, to much more interesting tools that come from the world of design thinking, from the world of social marketing and behavior change, and from the world of network analysis. Uh, So designing, managing, meaning how we um, engage with stakeholders, how we engage with uh, colleague organizations, and then focusing on partnering, meaning how do you create a, a strategy canvas so that you can figure out who to partner with? And finally, what are the modalities that are most likely to produce breakthrough and innovation. So this is a a three-week program that's offered, as I say, uh, in five um, five different times during the year in a variety of locales. And we have found that for people with master's degrees and people who are transitioning who may or may not have a master's degree, and for people who are considering development, that the program works really well. We have uh, generally a mix of practitioners, transitioners, and graduate students who enroll. The um, instructional faculty includes uh, not only myself, Evan Bloom, who I mentioned earlier, and a a woman who is doing a lot of work for us and with us on behavior change, Sharon Bean. And the beauty of this is that you instantaneously are part of a very large network. We've been running the program for 11 years now. We have a fantastic network of trans of of practitioners and what is amazing to me is that after three weeks people get jobs because the skills are so hands-on there's no theory in this program at all the theory is what we would assume somebody would pick up in a master's program this is just what do you do on day one around uh, a design challenge for example well, i want to mention the program again it's called dpmi You can find it um, at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies website, and it is a program that I think many of your listeners would find valuable if they're making a transition post-Peace Corps, uh, for example, or even from a field where they are senior managers but haven't done much development work. Thank you so much for that. We'll make sure it's mentioned on the blog post with this podcast. Terrific. I appreciate that. Bill, thank you so much for your time today. This has been a fantastic conversation. I always love speaking with someone with so much experience such as yourself. Thanks for giving us your time. Thank you, Stephen. It was a pleasure being able to spend this time with you. You've been listening to the Terms of Reference podcast from aidpreneur.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes. (laughs) 